Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I trust by God's grace and your diligence that you will not forget what we covered in the first service today. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. And that you'll remember that and all that flows from that. There are limited resources in a number of aspects of life. And when God gives to one a record week, he takes from another. And it's his choice. And we should always try to remember that. And when he took in World War II, which I used as a brief example, he took far less from us and took far more from others that were atheistic. The numbers are staggering. Our 416,000 fighting on two fronts, 27 million of the Soviet Union fighting on one front, that is a huge difference. One atheistic, one nation under God. Don't forget what was covered this morning. The sermon will be on the website shortly and a six-page outline with it. We are at Romans chapter 3. I hope I can excite you by God's convicting spirit as much about a totally different subject as the one this morning. It does pertain to our worldview, and it's another aspect of our worldview that I want to exalt. If you will think about this morning's I gave Egypt for thy ransom, it supported and expanded our worldview of a sovereign God that created all things for himself and rules over all and saves unconditionally. Right. We just expanded on it. I want to read to you the first two verses of Romans chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. If you can remember today, I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Please also remember these four simple words. The oracles of God. Of God. Amen. I have the oracles of God right here in my hand. You have them in your hand. These are the oracles of God. There's one and a half billion that have the Quran. It is the oracles of the devil. There's 30 million that have the Book of Mormon. It's the oracles of the devil. We have the oracles of God. It is a tremendous blessing that he chose to give us and to commit to us his oracles, the oracles of God. Let me tell you a story, and it's not a parable. It's history. Once upon a time, in faraway Greece, the ancient Mediterranean world traveled to Delphi 
for wisdom. Around 800 BC, the time of Jehoshaphat, the city of Delphi gave itself to the worship of Apollo, the national god of Greece. In the temple of Apollo at Delphi, the high priestesses served as the oracle of wisdom to the world. She and her successors were called the oracle of Delphi, for she was the source of divine wisdom, those high priestesses in succession. Ancient Greeks believed Delphi the center of the world, marked by a stone monument of a navel. The adoration and respect for these high priestesses continued for over 1,000 years until 400 A.D. As Greek religion has it, these women obtained their wisdom from Apollo's spirit filling them. These high priestesses were the most powerful women of the classical world of Greece and Rome. This oracle, as they called it, thus our word, this oracle, or the revelation of God, is one of the best documented religious institutions of Greece. You can read all you want about it. Tradition says these high priestesses spoke gibberish in a frenzied state that shortened their lives by its intensity. And their gibberish statements were interpreted by priests. Since the Greeks wrote a great deal about this oracle, there are all kinds of details, as I mentioned. The temple at Delphi to Apollo, where the oracle of Delphi was, meaning the high priestesses of that temple, survived until 390 A.D., when the Roman Christian emperor Theodosius the Great, or the first, silenced the oracle forever by destroying the temple and most other things in Delphi connected to paganism. It is now only archaeological ruins with a small town built nearby that has a few citizens and some commerce. Greece is now one of the jokes of Europe, showing her great lack of wisdom in finance, war, and other national endeavors. The Oracle of Delphi. We have the oracles of God. Amen. For 1,000 to 1,200 years, the Greeks looked to the high priestesses of the temple of Apollo in Delphi for divine wisdom. People would travel there like they do to Mecca now. This was long before Muhammad got his idea of the meteorite in Mecca, which was in the 8th century, and the oracle of Delphi was already destroyed in the 4th century, 390 A.D. We have the oracles of God. Look at that Romans chapter 3 and the first two verses again. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. We are in the middle of a sermon series 
about the only right worldview, but this passage serves it well. Remember axiom number two, God gave Scripture. Remember axiom number four, Scripture is absolute truth. Do you value it? We have the oracles of God. They had the oracle of Delphi, also called Pitha, for that high priestess, because they said, and this is what the Greek word Pitha means, Delphi stinks from Apollo killing the big python. The dead carcass of the python has given Delphi its odor. But Apollo defeated the big python. Greek wisdom at its best. The oracle of Delphi. You don't use you haven't used oracle in a sentence this past week. I just want to share a little bit with you about the word oracle. I love the word oracle. They had the oracle of Delphi. We have the oracles of God in writing, not gibberish, and there was no frenzied state. There were 40 men that God inspired by the Holy Spirit that wrote these words down for us, and He has preserved them now for 3,500 years, the first five books, 2,000 years, the last 27 books. Praise His glorious name. In this dark and confused world, and I just referred to the brightest ones that ever lived, the Greeks, we have the oracles of God. Let me give you the context. Romans is the gospel of God. It tells us that in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Paul began his presentation, and Romans does have the most extensive presentation about salvation found in any epistle. It has the most about how God saves us. Paul began his discussion of salvation like we should with depravity. And so he uses chapter 1, 2, and 3 all the way to verse 20 to condemn men as being hopelessly condemned before a righteous and holy God. After a little introduction in the first 15 verses of chapter 1, he proved all men condemned under sin in these first three chapters all the way to verse 20. Look at verse 20. Therefore, drawing a conclusion from two and a half chapters, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But, and that but's very important, because then it began a description of salvation. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested through Jesus Christ. And there's a dividing point in the book of Romans. But through Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, it's all about condemning us. And so get that in your minds first. He condemned the Gentiles in chapter 1 for rejecting creation truth. He condemned the Jews in chapter 2 and mocked their hope in circumcision. Let me show you that he's doing the Jews in chapter 2. See, in Romans 1, he only appealed to creation. The Jews were given a whole lot more than creation. The Jews were given the Old Testament scriptures and prophets. He doesn't, he, in the law of Moses. So he doesn't bring that up. It's Gentiles, primarily in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, look at verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew. See, he has switched his audiences 
in proving the condemnation of the Jews as well. Thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Verse 24, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you Jews, as it is written. Verses 28 and 29, here he picks on circumcision. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God, because God makes that difference in the hearts of men. Then, in the first eight verses of chapter 3, Paul, with his rhetorical brilliance, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, raised four questions and answered them, two verses each. One and two, three and four, five and six, seven and eight, four questions that they would ask, and he answered them. And we've been through this passage, but it's been a few years now since we went through Romans. So there's a question. He knows that the Jews are going to ask a question, so he writes the question and he answers the question. By this blast against them, the Jews would reject Paul for denying them as God's favored people. Do you understand that? The way he went after the Jews and made them equal to the Gentiles, and that they're all condemned? They knew they were God's favored people. They were God's favored people. So they're going to reject Paul for the way he's gone about this, making them equivalent to Gentiles. Circumcision had indeed been a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his children. But Paul had mocked the Jews for their guilt, and he denounced the outward circumcision as being of little importance at all, that it was the inward circumcision that counted. The obvious rebuttal question would be, do Israelites have no national privileges, Paul? Paul, are you saying that we Israelites have no national privileges by being the apple of God's eye? The overall context of the New Testament shows so many Jews trusting in their relationship to Abraham and the fact that they were Israelites and Jews. But Paul's going to undo that, and he's just undone it in Romans chapter 2, and he's undone it very thoroughly. Before leaving the context, you know, I'm thinking about the, I'm trying to share with you what the verses around our two verses are saying to us. Before we leave it, do you understand how the next questions and answers fits? Do you understand how Romans 3.1 fits? That Paul is out to condemn everyone for three chap two and a half chapters before he shows them salvation. And he's done the Gentiles first, then the Jews. He's mocked the Jews as being ridiculous in thinking that they're justified before God. And he's mocked their national right of minor surgery called circumcision. Was there no benefit, no profit, no advantage, no leverage for Jews? You know the answer. Because the answer is in verse 2, so you know the answer. How about for you? Is there any benefit, profit, advantage, leverage for being a Christian? Oh, yes. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, but that was this morning. We have another one right now. Right here in my hand, in my right hand, the oracles of God, the text. Verse 1, 
What advantage then hath the Jew? This is Paul giving a question that he knows his Jewish audience would want to ask. What advantage then hath the Jew? The way you've just dealt with us, Paul, by reducing us down to Gentiles, you're saying that there's no advantage to being a Jew. Paul, is there any advantage to being a Jew? We know there is, because we have a 1,500-year history of God's blessing toward us. The first and strong rebuttal question against Paul was from Israel standing with God. They were his chosen people. The Jews knew God had chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If Paul had condemned Jews and Gentiles together, then what benefit was there for Jews being the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The Jews had a national heritage of patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus out of Egypt under Moses. Canaan and the taking of seven nations there. The two temples that they built to the worship of God. They knew God had set the boundaries of all nations in regard to them. Do you know that's taught in the Bible? Do you want to learn something about geography that your teacher and all those wasted hours in class is not going to teach you? That all the nations of earth, political economy, all the nations of earth had their boundaries set by their relationship to the little tiny nation of Israel in God's sovereign government of the world. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8. They knew... The Jews knew God had given them Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, and others. They knew God had given them a priesthood, tabernacle, temple, and his prophets. If they were on their way to hell just like the Gentiles, was Paul denying God's favor toward them? That is what verse 1 means. I'm supposed to read in the book and the law of God distinctly and give you the sense. What advantage then hath the Jew, Paul? You've just knocked us down to Gentiles? There's got to be some advantage. You know that. What profit is there of circumcision? You know it's a sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham. You know it's tremendously important. What are you trying to say? The Jews believed unconditional earthly preeminence and eternal life for being Jews. Right. Terrible mistake. The Jews believed that they had an unconditional covenant from God. C.I. Schofield and the dispensationalists still believe the same thing. Mm -hmm. Unconditional covenant by God for earthly preeminence and eternal life. Because remember, C.I. Schofield does believe in an earthly millennium of Jews. Right. Or what profit is there of circumcision is another question. Paul asked two questions, which is really one. They're strongly related to each other. Paul, are you trying to say that we Jews, we Israelites, God's chosen people, God's religion, God's prophets, God's kings, God's men, we're nothing but like Gentiles? You're wrong. That's what the questions are for in verse 1. In Genesis chapter 17, God had given Abraham the sign of circumcision for his promised blessings. On him. The Jews kept this ritual going for nearly 2,000 years. Was Paul trying to say it was worthless? He had just blasted outward circumcision as quite worthless compared to the inward in the final two verses of chapter 2. It's right there in front of you. This is the context, but now we're focusing on the text. What are the questions in verse 1? What are they for? Paul knows that a Jew should, that a Jew could question him by the fact that they were God's chosen people. 
What advantage did they have? And what profit was there? I like those kind of words. To win, you need an advantage. To be successful, you need something profitable. To beat others, you need leverage. To trade, you must have an edge. It's advantage and it's profit. Because those are God's words that he chose. What advantage then hath the Jew? We are God's favored people. God's chosen people on earth. What advantage do we have? What profit is there of circumcision? What does circumcision get us? God made that covenant with Abraham 2,000 years ago. What's the profit? Those are the questions. I hope you understand verse 1 completely and totally. It's not that difficult. We want the answer. Oh. Verse 2. Romans 3, 2. Much every way. You Jews, don't misunderstand me. Much every way. But it doesn't get us to heaven. But we were blessed. God did bring us out of Egypt. God did give us Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God did give us his tabernacle worship. He did give us his priests. He did stop the sun for us and stop the moon for us and open up the Red Sea. Much, every way. There is advantage to being a Jew. There is advantage to circumcision. Much, every way. We are we're the most blessed people on earth. You know, we could go through the list of Joshua taking them into the land of Canaan, a land of milk and honey with the infrastructure intact to take possession of it raising up judges to deliver them from their enemies, even though they were the ones that had disobeyed to cause the enemies to come and take them captive and to persecute and punish them. We could go on about David being raised up and expanding the borders of Israel all the way to the Euphrates River and the Nile, when the kingdom was at its largest extent under David and Solomon. God delighted in Israel as the apple of his eye and told them so over all other nations, much every way. They were blessed. There's a little practical lesson here. When you are discussing or debating the truth with another Armenian Christian in Greenville, let's say, you don't have to make some wild statement like, you guys don't know anything. Okay? Because Paul is right here in an argument with Jews. And he said much every way. Is it possible for you in the heat of the battle to say, we agree on a lot of things, but I want to show you the way of God more perfectly? Is that better? Is that more Pauline? And Pauline was, Paul was speaking, not Pauline, but is it Pauline It's like Paul? To give that part of the argument much every way. There is great advantage in being an Israelite and a Jew, and there is great profit in circumcision as the sign of the covenant that God made with us. So he granted them that point. Just a little side note there that we ought to be more gracious than we may have been sometimes in the past or are tempted to do by our emotions in the heat of the battle. Much every way. Okay, well, can you hear the sigh of relief from the Jewish audience hearing this epistle read to them in Rome? Oh, Yes. They look across the aisle at the Gentiles sitting over there in the Church of Rome. 
much every way, babe. <laughs> Remember, I've taught, if you read the book of Romans, you know that, that was going on in that church. Because those two people had to set, those two groups had to settle down and love each other. And Romans 14 and 15 are all about them getting along with each other because there were lots of reasons for them to dislike each other. Much every way. Now look at our punchline here. Chiefly, out of all those different ways that God blessed Israel, the chiefest way that he blessed them was the oracles of God. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Divine revelation was better than anything else that you could tell me about of the Old Testament. Divine revelation told them, if they had read it carefully, that there was going to be a new form of religion coming. That God was going to raise up someone like Moses. And was going to be able to speak with God and be a mediator. Even the Old Testament told about the New Testament gospel. But the point is, not the New Testament gospel, that's coming. The point is, the scriptures were the most important gift God gave to the Jews. Do you know how much God gave you by what is in your hand? What is in your little your smartphone? What is in your computer at home? What is in the Bible that we can buy for a dollar at a dollar store? The tremendous blessings of the Bible. That's what verse 2 is saying, much every way. Yes, there were lots of advantages to being a Jew, but chiefly, but, there, it's not said but there, but you can tell that it's but, because much every way, but chiefly, out of all those ways, there was one better than the others, and the one that was better than the others is God committed to us the oracles of God. God, because that unto them, the Jews and the circumcised ones coming from Abraham had committed to them the oracles of God. And this is not the oracle of Delphi. These are the oracles of God. This is God's written revelation to us. The great benefit that Jews had over other people was God giving them his divine oracles. Of all angles of God's beneficence to Israel, his oracles was the chief advantage. Nothing else the Jews enjoyed by national heritage from God could compete with the Bible. They had God's will written down for them, for prosperity in this world, and hope for glory in the next, in the Bible. What are the oracles of God? What did Paul mean by this phrase? What did Paul mean by this word? Oracle. It's a Greek and a Roman word. The instrumentality, agency, or medium by which a God is supposed to speak or make known his will. I've already told you where it came from. It was a well-known Greek word. The oracle of Delphi. But we have the oracles of God, not of a Delphi priestess in the temple of Apollo. We have the Lord Jehovah because he gave scripture, axiom number two, and scripture is absolute truth, axiom number four. I just want to elaborate on it a little bit. I have limited myself to 10 lines of text for each axiom, lest I re-preach the entire Bible because our worldview is based on the entire Bible. I have never limited myself to 10 lines of text. 10 lines of text are like being hobbled at the ankles, handcuffed here, and blindfolded with the Word of God. And so I'm cheating by taking one Sunday off from adding more axioms to go back and expand a little bit on God, made all things for himself, rules over all things, 
and unconditionally saves by these words, I gave Egypt for thy ransom. And axiom number two, God gave scripture. And four, scripture is absolute truth with these words. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. How much do you appreciate the God that you heard about this morning? And every factor of your life. France doesn't love the Bible Belt of America. What did they put their North American headquarters for Michelin here, James? For you to have a job from that God-forsaken nation. And we could just go on and on and on. Every single one of you have so many blessings, but that was from this morning. Right now, it's do you know about this blessing of our worldview? Can you imagine taking a trek to Delphi? You can read about all the requirements to get into Delphi. It's all online. I just told you that they all know it is. There's more information about the Oracle of Delphi than any other single Greek religious institution. But we have the oracles of the living God. Delphi is just a pile of ruins. There's nothing left because Apollo isn't a god and the high priestesses were devil-possessed. I haven't compared them to anyone yet in America, but speaking gibberish in a frenzied state, I'm just going to leave it to your imagination. And it shouldn't take very much work. What does oracle mean? Well then, oracle has a definition of being transferred to Jews and Christians, a vehicle of divine communication. And so it's the Jewish holy of holies. If you look up the word oracle in your Bible, when it's singular, there's 17 occurrences of it's singular. And 16 of them are the holy of holies. Why would it be the holy of holies called the oracle? And it is 16 times. That's where God came. That's where God came and communicated with Israel. That's where God would come and communicate. He would be between the cherubim on the top of the mercy seat. So it was called the oracle. So 16 times it was called the oracle in the Old Testament, referring to the holy of holies of the tabernacle or the temple. One time it was called the name of the wisdom of Ahithophel. Because when Ahithophel gave an answer, it was like the oracle of God. Except... The Lord doesn't like anyone else being called the oracle because he's the oracle. And remember what he did to Ahithophel? He had David, with his blessing, send Hushai in there as another counselor to lie. And so that Absalom followed the counsel of Hushai and actually said, the counsel of Hushai is better. That is just not the word that Absalom should have used because Ahithophel went straight home and hung himself because no one had ever said that anyone else had wisdom or counsel better than him. Oh, I love the God of the Bible. I love him. And he blessed Hushai coming in there and giving some poor military advice, but it was advice that won. And that's, you got Oracle, we just whipped it. 17 occurrences in the Old Testament, 16 for the Holy of Holies, one for Ahithophel, and we've got four in the New Testament. Do you want to look at them quickly? Look at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, so that you can see that they're the Scriptures. I just want you to love this word, because we're going to go home with something in your hand and something in your heart. And I, Well, both can be in your heart. The God of the Bible is in your heart, 
and so can His Word be hidden in your heart, but you're going to go home with the oracles of God. What a blessing we have. Amen. Credibly blessed. Acts chapter 7, verse 36, 38, 38. Stephen is preaching. This is he, speaking of Moses, that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us. What did Moses get when he went up on Mount Sinai? He got two tablets of stone with Ten Commandments and all the other rules for Israel. Why are they called the lively oracles? Because this is your life. Those are Moses' words about the Old Testament law that he gave Israel. This is your life. Do this and live. Didn't you see that last night in Deuteronomy chapter 7? If you disobey, I'll have to hurt you. If you'll obey, I'll bless you. The lively oracles because they gave a prosperous life on earth by obeying them. And you could get to heaven if you could just keep them. But they weren't given for that purpose. They were given for life on earth. So that's Acts chapter 7. Then let's go over and look at uh, Galatians chapter 3. No, we're going to go to Hebrews 5. We don't need Galatians 3. That's just trying to expand on Moses being the mediator that went up on the mountain and came down with God's scriptures. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 5. There's lots of references. I'm just going to give you a few of them. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, Paul rebuked his audience. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. God's revelation in Scripture, you've got to hear the first principles all over again, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Those six verses I read to you to show you that the oracles mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 5 are referring to scripture, including the New Testament, that Paul wanted to move on from the elementary facts of God's revelation to men and to get to more advanced material, and he certainly did, as he brought Melchizedek in, in the next couple of chapters, especially chapter 7. There's reference number 2. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's hear Peter's exhortation to ministers. 1 Peter. Paul would say, what's his three-word description, or job description, for pastors? Paul's to Timothy, preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. What's Peter's? In 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. He is preaching God's word. They're God's words. They're not his words. And let him conduct himself with that ministry. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And that's what's to be preached. So when a minister opens his mouth and is preaching the word of God, he's preaching the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Do you think I'm going to get up in this pulpit today and tell you something from my head 
and pretend it's the oracles of God? Except that dude at the dance in the first service this morning. And I, I apologize for that. I, I want to just preach the word. And it's called the oracles of God. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Oracles in our text. The chief blessing of God to Israel is the inspired holy scriptures. We have the answer book to every question, any question that we can raise, any part of our lives, any part of this world, anything, right here. God gave it to us in writing, starting 3,500 years ago. These scriptures were for national and personal life by obeying God. Look at Deuteronomy 32, 47, because I want to show you that they're the lively oracles. 32 and 47. And there's more references, but this is one of the special verses where Moses told them, he said in one place, the scriptures are are for your good. The scriptures are for your righteousness with God. The scriptures are for your life. Right here. Deuteronomy 32, 47. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land, whither ye go over Jordan to possess it. Well, you say, what is the thing? It's verse 46. And he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do, all the words of this law. That is the Old Testament law given to Israel. This is your life. Do you want to be successful in any part of life in the sight of God and men? Right here. We have the oracles of God, not the oracle of Delphi, not the oracle of Ahithophel, the oracles of God in writing. Praise his glorious name. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. God's made a commitment to us. Are we going to uphold the commitment? What's the commitment? That we are the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, it is part of our worldview. This church, we want to encourage each other, push each other, teach each other, and defend our truth to anyone. We want to support it. We want to be the pillars. We want to be the foundation of it. We want to speak it, teach it, promote it, explain it, justify it, and lead others to come to the way of God more perfectly because of the truth of God's words, because it's been committed to us. Oh, what if, we, what if I had a little five-foot gold box up here? A little five-foot gold box, two and a half feet wide, two feet wide, a couple of... Uh, angels with, with wings overspread on top of it, and there were, there, were, there, were, there were rings on the side of it to put staves in, and we could walk around and swing some incense this morning and be carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what I have to say to that? It can't be recorded. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. Amen. That isn't where God dwells. Do you know where God dwells? This is the Holy of Holies for Him on earth. And he dwells in the Holy of Holies in heaven. But he's committed something to us, and it's not that little gold box. He's committed something to us, and it's not the Passover. Are all of you aware that many churches are now trying to keep the Passover, which is the most ridiculous reclension back to the Old Testament? A Christian should never want to keep the Passover. The Passover was already kept by Jesus Christ. And when we stand before God, The blood that's going to be on the door over our heads is going to be the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He'll pass over us in that day. It's absurd to go backward to the shadow. We want the reality. We're on the reality side of the cross. So what has God committed to our protection? 
The Sabbath? The Passover? The Ark? The pillar and ground of the truth is what this church should be. We want everyone in our church to love the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to talk about the Word of God, to excite each other about the Word of God. Because what advantage does a Christian have? Much every way. But chiefly, on this earth, is committed to us, the oracles of God. And the next world, eternal life. The lesson. God gave Scripture. Scripture is absolute truth. Every man with any idea of who God is, number one, God is. In the beginning, God is. Number five, Jehovah is the only God. Every man with any idea of who God is wants God to speak to him. Right. We want God to speak to us. Amen. We want God to talk to us. Tell us what he wants from us. Tell us what wisdom he's willing to share with us. Do you know that he's done that? Amen. And he's committed it to us. God has spoken by his prophets. He has then spoken by his son, then by the apostles, and put it in writing for us to savor and shout. Because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The Bible we preach is not the words of men, but rather the words of God himself. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 God's written oracles are superior in every way to frenzied priestesses hallucinating. After 800 years of the oracle of Delphi, in 65 AD, when Paul visited Athens, what did he say about that illustrious city? Superstition and ignorance. I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, I declare unto you. Amen. That is the writer of our oracles of God, about their oracles and their wisdom in the capital of their nation on the most illustrious place in that city, Mars Hill, otherwise known as the Areopagus. Areopagus. Thank you, Lord. When earth is like Delphi, our oracles will still stand. The Lord is going to reduce this world till, till it looks like Delphi, Greece, and our oracles will still be true. Theirs are long gone and worthless and now a joke. The oracles of God, a divine library, as I like to call it to you, is very fantastic in breadth, depth, and intimacy. Breadth. You cannot think of an aspect of life that the oracles of God does not deal with. Right. Depth. It plums hell. Mm -hmm. Does it tell me about a rich man in hell? Yeah. It plums hell. Plums heaven. Does it tell me what it's like in heaven? Remember? It plums heaven. The heart of man. The heart of God. Angels desire. Doctrine. It tells us all. It's depth. And then it's intimacy. God expressed and promised love in fabulous ways beyond imagination. It's so intimate. Did you see the 10 pronouns in Isaiah 43, 3 and 4? Did you see them? 10 of them. Thy, thee, thy, thee, thy, thee. So personal, so intimate. Our names are on the palms of his hands. Our names are written in the book of life. 
Every tear you've ever cried is in his bottle. Even if it didn't make it to the tear ducts of your eyes, it's in his bottle, and every one of your wanderings is written in his book. That's the intimacy of the oracles of God. God chose us for this time to preach and defend his oracles as men corrupt it with varying versions and no longer preach it from the pulpit, but tell stories. To Israel were committed the oracles of God, and we have the combined library. What did they have? Do you want to start with Joshua? What did he have? Five books. One of them was Leviticus, so let's call it four. You know how I mean that. I hope you do. I love every word of God, including Leviticus, because Leviticus tells me that I worship a detailed God, even if I got nothing else out of it, and there's plenty more to get out of it in the book of Leviticus. While others turn to entertainment and fables, let us exalt and promote the Bible in this church. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and God's truth is only in the Bible. Our worldview, no matter how perfectly or imperfectly I organize it and present it, has to exalt our oracles. We're Baptists, but we're first Bible Christians. Because if we weren't Bible Christians first, we wouldn't know how to be Baptists. So remember that. We've got to go to the Bible first, we wouldn't be Baptists. We're not Baptists, then go to the Bible. You know, those are the people that are born into a Baptist church because their parents were Baptists and their grandparents were Baptists. They're Baptists. No, we're not like that. We're Baptists because the Bible tells us to be Baptists because we went to the Bible first. You know the Bible trumps all of man's vain thoughts. The thoughts of man are vain, but oh, how I love thy law, David said. Do you read it like you should? My brethren, he's committed to us. He's committed to us. The oracles of God. Do you read it like you should? Searching it daily a little, like the Bereans? The Bible can be a two-edged sword. It will bless you if you obey it. It will punish you if you disobey it. It's a serious book. It's to be dealt with seriously. The Bible cannot profit anyone without obedience. Do not be foolish like the Jews and trust in their temple. The temple of Jeremiah 7. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. The Jews would stand in that temple. It was beautiful. Solomon had made it magnificent. And they would just repeat the words, the temple of the Lord. And God said, do you think that you're going to be spared because you have my temple? Have you forgotten what I did to Shiloh that had my house once? I'm going to tear this thing to the ground. I'm going to burn it down to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and take you captive into Babylon because you're trusting in the temple instead of obeying me. But let's jump away from Israel to us. I have the Word of God. I have the oracles of God. I love my King James Bible. Amen. Preach the Word, brother. Preach the Word. The Bible does not profit unless we obey it. Do you love it like David did? David loved the words of God. Will you teach it to your children to love it, read it, teach it, expect it, defend it, and every other thing we can do with the Bible? He's committed to us, the oracles of God. Let's make sure we obey them, love them, teach them, and explain the way of God more perfectly to any that he brings our way. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.